When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code SPOTIFY to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code SPOTIFY at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code SPOTIFY. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back to the Final Four is not on the schedule. He is Rod. I am Cameron. And we are back to preview UCLA, the first play-in game for Michigan State, um, into the field of 68. Um, and Rob, before we get started on them, um, there has been some some things floating around about um, the transfer portal uh, with Michigan State. Um, we've heard a, a couple guys that are familiar, uh, and then also one that um, uh, maybe not so familiar. What, what are you hearing as far as the transfer portal is concerned? Well, over the last day or so not not so active today um but yeah well maybe it was this morning i can't remember when Harar's name came up but over the last 24 to 48 hours let's say kind of coinciding with coaching decisions which is something else we should talk about in the big 10 is looking at a minimum of three coaching changes um but coinciding with some of that, and, and then there'll be a ton of guys where it's not about coaching changes, uh, there have been a bunch of names that have come into the portal, into the transfer portal. And we've seen three thus far that have been at least publicly reported as having had Michigan State reach out to them. The first one was a, a couple days ago, and that's the name that's less familiar, Tyson Walker, who's a point guard from Northeastern in the Patriot League, I believe. Um, interesting player. He's six feet, about 165 pounds, so we're not talking about a big player. I've watched some clips, haven't seen him play a, a regular game yet. Um, interesting. Uh, big score, like 19 points a game. Not quite as efficient as you would like to see. He was... Um, little over 40%, I think, from the floor, mm-hmm. but 35% from three. Not bad, but as you and I talk about every year when we do our, our Big Ten previews, we typically have a handful of guys who are what I call transfer-up players who have moved as grad transfers from um, a mid-major or a low, a low D1 program up to the Big Ten level. Yeah. Almost always – that results in a lessening of efficiency and effectiveness in shooting, especially from deep. 
I mean, I can go chapter and verse over the last decade. The problem is <laughs> there was an exception this year, a big one, Mike Smith, the guy that Michigan got from Columbia, yeah. who was kind of like Walker, a volume shooter, big scorer, even a bigger scorer than Walker was. But Mike Smith went from like a 33% three-point shooter, which is why I was very skeptical about his being the answer mm-hmm. at Michigan, to a 44% shooter this year. He also improved his assist-to-turnover ratio from 1.5 to 1 to 2.5 to 1. So now you have a bunch of Michigan State fans who don't pay close attention to this stuff annually thinking that it's easy. Because <laughs> yeah. This year, I mean, Michigan themselves as a program has had guys like this. Jaron Simmons a few years ago was an all Mac point guard from Ohio, had great numbers at that level, total flame out. And their season was only salvaged by the fact that Xavier Simpson came on as a sophomore and eventually won that job. But Simmons was supposed to be the guy and he totally flamed out. That is, that kind of outcome is more the rule than the exception. Um, I'm not trying to bag on Tyson Walker. One of the other things, his assist-to-turnover ratio was not great. It was, again, about one-and-a-half or one-and-two-thirds to one. He didn't hit the magic two-to-one level. Um, One thing you do like about him and why I would think Michigan State showed some interest is he was his conference's defensive player of the year. Okay. That's good. So that suggests that, and, and look, this is what I said on the Spartan Mag board. I'll repeat it here. Um, I think if you're Michigan State, it, it comes down to this. What kind of role do you envision needing to fill at that spot? Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised at looking at a point guard, but what are you looking for? If you believe that Jaden Akins is going to be good enough as a freshman, to play a significant role. It doesn't necessarily have to be a starter's role, but say high teens, at least in terms of minutes. Well, that's one thing to consider. Then you got three other guys, Rocket Watts, who you have to assume is at least to some extent in the point guard picture if he returns. Um, and then Foster Lawyer, we don't know about his health. We don't know about, you know, whether he would choose to move on. My understanding is he'll be graduating this summer. So he would have options, certainly, uh-huh. um, even beyond this, you know, get out of jail free card the NCAA has granted due to COVID, where everybody can transfer and be immediately eligible regardless. And then you got AJ Hogard, who I don't know. I don't know what his role is going forward. So I think the first thing is, if you're Tom Izzo, do you think you need a starter? And if you do, well, then that casts a certain, um, a certain perspective. On these things, and I would be more dubious about a guy with Walker's profile. Doesn't mean he might not be the answer, but again, the rule is, at least offensively, these guys don't tend to make that transition mm-hmm. to the level you would like to see. I mean, if you're talking about a 35% three point shooter who dips down to 30, as if he comes to the Big Ten level, which is not unheard of. That's what happens to a lot of these guys. Because the moving up in level of competition, your window of opportunity for an open shot is smaller. The scouting is much better. The athletes you're playing against are much better. The defensive schemes are better. I mean, it's just better. Mm-hmm. all the way, And making it tougher on you as a shooter. But if that resulted in his being a 30% guy, well, how much are you gaining? 
Is he going to be a better decision maker than he was at Northeastern? I don't know. But but if the boy though, if, if he's he, coming off the bench, if he's the best defensive player go. in that league, that, there you go. That to me is a win. There you go. And that and if if that's how you're looking at it, if you're saying I need a guy to play a role. I need a guy who makes me feel secure that if Jaden Akins has some rough spots or whoever else comes back and and we and we need a guy who can also play like high teens to 20 minutes a night. We're not putting too much of a burden on him. We just want him to basically be a threat offensively, to run the offense decently, and to lock up on defense. If that's the idea, well, maybe he's your answer. So that's what I'm saying is that I think that you need you need to figure out first and foremost what do you really see as your level of need yeah. in in this program, right? And so that's why I'm and and because of that, let's also consider something. We're still in the middle of March. I am here to tell. I mean, as of when we're recording this, it's March 16th. I am here to tell you that between now. And a month from now, April 16th, I would anticipate the number of people in the portal is going to explode. Yeah. We're not, we're, we are at the very, very beginning of this. And, and if you're playing the odds, and especially if you think, hey, I, I need to have somebody I can look at as a starter, that that's the MSU perspective, then I think you want to wait. I think you want to see if there are high major guys who become available, because that will happen. Is there somebody you like enough that you think could step right in and be a good starter for you? I don't rule that out. And he's only a sophomore, right? Right. And so that's the other dynamic here too, is you're not talking about just a guy for a year necessarily. Potentially you're talking about sinking a scholarship in for multiple years. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's another dynamic. On the other hand, it's rapidly becoming a sport where you are going year to year. And this yeah. offseason is going to prove that. So do you worry about that at all? Or do you just say, hey, we're going year to year and guys are going to move no matter what. So I can't worry about, am I sinking a, a slot into this guy for three years? I got to take him for this season because I think he can help. And if it doesn't work out, so be it. And we make a change next year. But I, I just think a lot of people got excited because they saw the stats and like, well, with MSU's problems at the position, hey, this is a solution. Well, I think you got to look a little deeper at the numbers. You have to put that into a historical perspective as to how guys doing making this kind of jump have tended to turn out at the Big Ten level. You can't get blinded by Mike Smith yeah. because that's by far been the exception. Um, and then, then I think the other thing, as I mentioned, is you got to figure out if you're Michigan State. What kind of role do I need a grad transfer to play? Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because, again, positionally, this is where you'd expect them to have a lot of interest because it was the biggest problem. You know, I think for me, the two positions where I can see them taking a transfer are the one and the five because those were the issues this year. And that's where they really had, that's both where they really had glaring issues this year. And it's also where I don't, you know, the other spots at the four, assuming neither one of them leaves, Malik Hall and Joey Hauser are coming back. That's going to be your combo. And I know both of those guys have struggled, 
but I still feel pretty good about those two guys going into next season. I think that that you, you've got reason to think that can be a pretty good combo at the four spot. And then at the wings, we know we've got a minimum of the three and or the three incoming players, because I would count Aikens as a guy who can also play off the ball, but definitely Brooks and Christie uh-huh. at a minimum. And then if you got Imani Bates, <laughs> there's another guy who's going to play a lot of minutes. And then you further look, you have Gabe Brown, who you would think will be returning. Um, we don't know about Rocket. Does Rocket come back? If he comes back, maybe he moves back more exclusively off the ball. We don't know about Josh Langford. Yeah. yeah. He opts to come back. So I think the wing for the moment, I'm not, when we'll get to that in a second when we talk about Al Durham, but, um, I don't see that as a priority, at least in my opinion, it wouldn't be. Um, we'll see how Tom Izzo feels, but I think the one on the five, that's where you would expect it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and then we move on to those guys that you mentioned fans are more familiar with. Um, obviously Archie Miller, we'll turn to this in a second, got fired from Indiana, which yeah. surprised me because of the buyout, but it goes to show you what I've maintained for a long time. <laughs> they found that money somewhere. Somebody ponied up the deal. Well, the word is it was Mark Cuban. I don't know if that's what? 100% accurate, <laughs> but that is the word. The word is that they got two boosters involved. One paid the buyout, which was like 10 mil, 12 mil, something like that. And then another is funding, at least in some respect, the um, salary for whoever the new coach is going to be. So that's we'll get did into that. Did go to Indiana? He did. Or, okay. Yeah, he's in the He's in the lawn. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that more in a second. But the interesting thing was Al Durham, who's been a four-year player there, I think a three-year starter or most of three years, definitely the last two, yeah. and a player I really like. Uh, had a lot of, got a lot of people involved. I mean, Kansas, Duke, a whole bunch of people have reached out. Michigan State was among those. Al Durham is a guy I like. Good defensive player. Has been a decent offensive player. He averaged a little over 11 a game this year. Shot 38% from three. He's a, a solid secondary ball handler type. Positive assist to turnover ratio. He's just a nice, I could see why Michigan State would, would have an interest because he's a guy I could envision just objectively, kind of in a vacuum. Could that guy play for Tom Izzo? And I think, yeah, he probably could. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think he's a wing. I don't think he solves your point guard problem. Yeah. Unless, unless Michigan State says, Hey, I only need a guy, I think, to just solidify things in a role. Maybe that's how they see it. Uh, but uh, in any event, a, a name to watch because Michigan State apparently made contact. Then the third guy was John Harar from Penn State. And Penn State, we'll get into this detail in a second made a coaching change they announced a new hire yesterday since that hire they've had six guys hit the portal oh my god <laughs> uh, four five i think five of their top six scores so it's lundy um Myrian jones who's a hell of a player and if you were in the market for a wing boy that would be a guy i'd love to see michigan state get involved with but yeah. i've seen nothing indicating it yet uh brockington Hit the uh, Jamari Wheeler, their point guard. Oh gosh, um, who's another guy? I mean, honestly, if you if you were looking at it, and you're saying, I just want somebody to give me 15, 16 minutes a night mm-hmm. and defend hellaciously and run the offense well. And Jamari Wheeler can actually shoot. He doesn't do it in volume, but he 
you know, he's been by, in terms of efficiency, he's been very effective the last two years. All those guys are gone, but Harar is as well, or at least they, they've put themselves in the portal. I shouldn't say they're gone because I think with a new coach, you would expect he's going to try to re-recruit those guys. And who knows? He may be successful on some or all of them. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't rule it out, but, um, and that, any guy, of- that guy is the, uh, the assistant from Matt Painter, right? Who took that? That's job? right. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll return to that in a second because I've got a thought or two about that. Okay. But, um, but just finishing up on Harar, if you remember, he did a lot of damage in the game in, in East Lansing at Penn State almost yeah. won. I like Six, Harar. Nine, about 2, 250. Uh, he's, he have, he has evolved from what I kind of semi-derisively call a try-hard guy mm-hmm. earlier in his career to a legitimately effective player. 8.8 points, 8.8 rebounds a game. Um, was in the top five overall in rebounding, and I think was number two in offensive rebounding in the conference. He's strong. He's tough. He plays physically. He's got a decent low post game. He's not Nick Ward, but he's he's good he at that beat. setting the picks and stuff. Though he's yeah solid. In so there. that one again on the surface, if you are thinking you're going to add a five man. John Harar, I get it why Michigan State would express interest because he fits the mold. The one question I've got about him would be, and, and honestly, I just haven't focused in enough on him to have a good feel for this. How does he defend? How is he as a pick and roll defender? Because ultimately, that's a really, really important part of playing the five in any program now. Yeah. But in particular, Michigan State. Um, and then, and then again, I would say the other. Part of the equation here is who else is coming. I mean, John Harar, who's going to be available? You know, John Harar, yeah, he looks like a guy you could plug him in as a 20-minute-a-night guy at Michigan State. You'd feel pretty good about that, but might there be somebody better? I don't know. It's possible, you know. But So those are the three guys that have surfaced thus far. I would caution anybody who's – doing mental backflips over any of these guys thus far is that list is going to grow before it shrinks. Um, the guys who come out and, and put themselves in the portal, that's going to grow. And the guys you see mentioned with Michigan state, I suspect is going to grow at the five spot. And we've talked about this before. You had a very interesting dynamic because you have four guys there. And I think you and I have both felt like, after this season, there's probably a change coming, you know, somewhere in that group. I just don't know where. Um, You know, Thomas Kithier, he would still probably be the last guy that I would put on that likely to transfer list because, well, for a number of reasons. One, he's he's a limited role player who... Seems to be okay. I, I don't know. Maybe there's, maybe there's something else and he has a burning desire to play 30 minutes a night somewhere else and he leaves, but I don't think so. And this isn't just my opinion. I mean, I'm basing this on things I've heard not super recently, but during the course of the year. Mm. He's also a Michigan State kid. His mom played volleyball at Michigan State. He grew up in the state. I just, I don't see that as likely when I compare it to the other guys. I would tend to think Sissoko is not a transfer candidate either. I mean, that's a kid who's seen, you know, structure and and being a part of something and having a grounding. It seems to be very important for him given, 
you know, coming over here from Mali and, you know, all that went into those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that he's got a lot of potential and Michigan State knows he's just scratched the surface. I don't, so to me, and this is just my opinion, the guys who would be most likely would be Bainham and Marble. And then the question, we talked about Marble, you know, his dad died horribly, of course, that that happened to him this season. Um, and he's from Texas. He's not a local kid. So that and frustrations over role, maybe he might opt to transfer somewhere closer to home with Marcus Bainham. The last time we talked about it, I thought, you know, Hey, that this could happen here. He might, he might look at it and say, I, I need an opportunity to start fresh. But ever since then, he's pretty consistently been their best five man. Yeah. So, so I don't know, but, but the problem is with all of these guys, there's not a single one of them that I can point to and say, he gives Tom Izzo everything he wants from a five man. None of them, Marble's the closest to being a proven low post scorer, mm-hmm. but he's, he's not proven to be a guy that you say, okay, we're going to, we're going to get, you know, 10 and eight from him every night, even you you wouldn't say that. We, we've seen no indication of that, in part because he kind of struggles as a defender and a rebounder sometimes. With Markey, I think he's been a lot better, and he's a guy you definitely can see ways he can he can impact things, but a low-post scorer, he is not. Um, and, and, and keep in mind, too, Michigan State struggled mightily to establish a post game this year, right? Yeah. yeah. And they're going to lose their best post player in Aaron Henry. So the only guy who is even halfway decent is going. I think that's something they've got to find an answer to, and that's why I think they will probably look to add a five, and a five specifically who can give them something in the paint. Mm-hmm. So how that mix at that position works out, I don't know, but I think change is coming. I, I was looking for this stat while you were, you were talking. Um, I know we don't – you don't pay attention to box plus minus too much, but over the course right. of, of a whole season, you can get a, a little bit of an idea. Mm-hmm. Guess who's leading Michigan State box plus minus on the season? Marcus Bingham. Yep. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not shocked. Aaron I'm Henry shocked. at 8.2. We, we've talked about it, especially down the stretch, say the last eight games or so, eight, uh, ten games. Michigan State's generally looked their best when he's been on the floor. Yeah. The problem is he can't be on the floor all the time because of foul trouble, because of matchup issues in certain matchups. We talked about Maryland, not a good matchup for him. Um, you know, it just, it, it's not like they could say, and I don't even know if his conditioning was at a point that they felt he could give them 25 minutes. Uh-huh. He had a game or two. He had that game against, I think the, the Michigan win. I want to say he got over 20 minutes, which might have been the first time he's done that this year. Mm. Um, so maybe that's improving, but yeah, I'm not shocked by that. And that's why it complicates the picture because if we were talking about this in early January, I think it's a much easier discussion to say, yeah, maybe Marcus should just go somewhere else and wipe the slate clean and see what happens. You know, it just hasn't worked here, but other than in flashes. But then you look at the way he closed this season, and man, you'd hate you'd hate to lose out on what you might get from him potentially. Yeah. In terms of his defensive impact, he's become a much better rebounder. And yet, I then return to we still don't have a low post scorer, and they have to get that. They have to. Mm-hmm. 
have to have somebody in this league who can who can give you that kind of presence inside. I just firmly believe that. And again, the one guy who's done it and who's facilitated it lately is going. Yeah. That's the one certainty <laughs> I think in all of this is that that guy's gone. So I can't look at. It. I just can't realistically think. Yep, Marcus Bingham has shown enough. He's the guy next year, and and that's it. And he's going to be a twenty-five minute a night guy, and maybe Sissoko continues to develop, and he eats up the other fifteen, and they're good. I, I just I don't think you could go into the off season thinking that way. Yeah. So I think they're going to add somebody at that spot. I just don't know who yet. And again, Harar would not be the worst choice, but. Because that would just be a one-year deal, right? That he's only got one year left because yeah. this is—he's played four at Penn State, so this this would be it, um, right? And it doesn't eat up a scholarship. You're you're right about that element of it. Um, and as long as he was comfortable with it, as long as he knew, hey, you're coming into a situation where you're not going to play quite the level of minutes you did at Penn State. You're going to be more of a piece to a bigger puzzle. Okay. You know, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the route you take. And I certainly, let's put it this way. And, and you can go play tight end. <laughs> right. Well, that's, again, that's another reason why it's so easy to see him as a guy as a likes. Yeah. He's got the football background too. And and that's also an indication, because he was a tight end recruit, if I remember correctly. That's also an indication of his athleticism. And again, I, I apologize. I just haven't had time to drill down on what he looks like as a defender in space, I know he's got the size and strength to be good on the blocks. Um, but if he could do that, at least competently, that's a guy I could easily see filling that role. Mm-hmm. You know? But who knows? There might be a guy who legitimately could be a 25, 30 minute a night guy out there who becomes available. Uh, I'll throw a name out there for you. And this is way, 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 way early and massively speculative. Uh, Trace Jackson Davis. Trace Jackson <laughs> was asked what he plans to do, and he gave a complete noncommittal answer. He has not put his name into the portal yet, to my knowledge. Um, I don't think he would go pro? Yeah, that's what I expected, uh-huh. but I expected that last year, and it didn't happen. Um, I don't know what the deal was with him. I would still, if you put a gun to my head, I would expect he goes pro. But if he were to decide he wanted another year of college, and if he decided to transfer away from IU, I think it's fair to say you would start with Michigan State at the top of that list because they were the runner-up. Same, same situation as Joey Hauser. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The um, thing I worry so, about with Indiana, though, is in terms of like El Durham and him, is – they're probably going to wind up with a pretty good candidate head coach. Probably. Probably. Yeah. You would think. We'll, we'll get into that in a second. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I – and, and so you're saying might that guy be able to successfully recruit guys. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely possible. But, you know, it's a funny thing. Sometimes it doesn't matter as much. And a guy chose a school for a specific reason, and now that that reason, that former head coach, is gone. And it, and they just decide – I mean, let's put it this way. If you're Trace Jackson Davis, you know Tom Izzo better almost certainly than whomever is going to be taking that Indiana job. Right, right. You know, that's different than 
Durham. MSU didn't recruit Durham out of high school. That's just a that's just from going against Michigan State for four years, you know. Yeah. But Trace Jackson Davis, it's then again, that's totally speculative, but it is being asked. I've seen it suggested. It's kind of worth keeping half an eye on because my only point is if a guy like that became available, well, there's your total answer. Right. You know, that that's a guy you would you would plug in for thirty plus minutes a night and that's it. Problem solved in a lot of ways. Not that he's a perfect <laughs> player, but boy, as a scorer and a rebounder at least he would he would solve a lot of issues. Yeah. So you just don't know what's gonna be available is my point. But if it came down to it and Harar wanted to come to Michigan State and he was the best option available at the time, I, I could see it. That's the profile, at least, or the kind of guy you'd have confidence in because he's done it at the Big Ten level. You know his strengths and weaknesses because you've gone against him. Um, you know, it's possible, but it's also possible he gets re-recruited back to Penn State or he goes somewhere else entirely. Who knows? Yeah. But that's that's the, the portal stuff. And then I, we said we'd talk about the coaching. Yeah, so, yeah, Archie Miller, why don't we start there? Um, yeah. I'm not surprised at all. Uh to be honest with you, I mean, if you're Indiana and you're sitting there in the tournaments in Indianapolis and you're looking at it like, Jesus, we haven't been to the tournament in four years. Like, mm-hmm. uh, there's got to be somebody better out Purdue. there. There just has you to have, be. You haven't beat Purdue in four years. Yeah, look, performance-wise, no question. Okay? I I just thought it was a hefty buyout. And I just, whereas next year it becomes nothing. Right. I thought they, that there was a better chance that they would look at it and say, eh, COVID season, everything was screwy. Let's just roll the dice one more year. And if it doesn't work, we get rid of them next spring. Obviously, what's been demonstrated, if you had any doubts, and I've, I've seen this debate everywhere over the last 24 hours is, is Indiana still a big-time program? Well, let's start with the idea that they just paid a guy. They had an alum come in and pay a guy, um, what would it be, eight digits to go away. Yeah. Yes, I, they're a big-time program. I'll tell you what. I'm I'm more afraid of whoever Indiana is going to get than where Indiana has been sitting the last four years. Mm-hmm. The only caveat to that, man – is that's the exact conversation I had four years ago when they hired Archie Miller. Because <laughs> it, it is. It is. Because Archie Miller had been the hottest name in coaching circles for a couple years running. He, he'd taken Dayton to an Elite Eight. Um, he'd won 20-some games every year. He'd been there. His teams were tough. They were the polar opposite in so many ways of what Tom Crean had had. If you remember, Tom Crean had all those teams that – had pretty offensive numbers, but were kind of like Iowa-esque, really bad defensively. And it it was the main reason they struggled at least some of the time in the Big Ten. He did win two Big Ten titles. People Mm. forget that. Um, But uh, I thought, and I think everybody thought, well, Archie Miller is the guy. You know, he will be the guy to turn it around. He emphasizes the right things. And, and look, in some ways, he actually did follow through on that. The belief was they needed somebody to come in and right the ship in terms of in-state recruiting. Crane had 
a big class early on. He had that 2012 class with, well, two consecutive years, 11 and 12. He had Zeller, Cody Zeller, and then he followed that up with that group with um, um, Oladipo. Uh, was it Oladipo in that class? But he had a lot of in-state guys. Yogi Ferrell was the head. Yogi, that was probably he, it. He had some other, but Oladipo was obviously a recruiting success as well. And then, and then he just stopped being able to get Indiana kids. I mean, you know, Michigan State, and even you could say to an extent Purdue. Um, I don't know how many kids Purdue got over that period. Also had Indiana offers, but they certainly did better with Indiana kids than IU did. And, and that was one of the main critiques of Crane is, well, he can't close the deal on the best talent. You know, he didn't mm-hmm. get Garrett Harris. Yeah. You know, as you could yeah. say, there were other schools that came into Indiana and took kids out of there um, over that time. Um, and and that was a big criticism. Well, Archie Miller came in, and the biggest names in Indiana high school basketball over the period of time he was head coach he got most of those guys. Mm. He got um, Langford, who was all everything. Yeah. He got Trace Jackson Davis. He got Christian Lander this year, who obviously didn't play that way. But Christian Lander was considered an elite recruit before in his class before he, he reclassified. So Archie Miller did kind of deliver on that. Um, what he didn't deliver on was putting together a team, especially offensively. He never figured that out. They never... They never had enough perimeter shooting. They never, and I've talked about this here before, they never solved the point guard problem. The last real point guard they had was Yogi Ferrell, who graduated in 2016. Yeah. So it's been a while. Um, so I don't know. You're right. You would think whoever comes next is going to be better, and they probably will be. The only caution I would offer to that is that's what we thought about Archie Miller. And before that, everybody thought Tom Crean was going to be great there. I certainly did. And it kind of looked like he was going to be. If you checked in like 2012, 2013 especially, you would have thought, okay, Indiana's back. Yeah. Crane's got recruiting humming. This team is the best team in a loaded Big Ten. And then they had that Sweet 16 flame out against Syracuse, and it never quite got right again. So who knows? But I I guess – to bring it back around to what I was saying, a lot of debate about out there about is Indiana a big time job anymore? Is it? Of course it is. Yeah, the, that's the a sleeping that, giant. <laughs> oh yeah, the the things that determine that, and we talk about this here before. I know we've touched on it. Are primarily um, your resources. So what's available to you, and how much? Does the school care? Well, they just paid eight figures. Somebody, they got somebody to pony up, pay eight figures to make the guy go away. They care. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And then the second thing is, is it easy to recruit there? Well, you're sitting in one of the most talent rich states year in, year out. You are still the dominant presence with the right guy. You absolutely will be the big dog in recruiting in that state. Doesn't mean you get everybody. Because they produce too many players to get everybody. It's kind of like the way the state of Michigan used to be in the 80s and 90s, where there were so many guys. Like, well, you're not going to get everybody because you don't have enough scholarships, right? You know, so you just got to kind of hope you get the right guys. Um, Indiana, though, will be a major player with the right guy in recruiting. There's no doubt about that. So those are the things that you look at to to measure, in my opinion, at least, to measure how good a job is. 
they're in place there. You can win a you can aspire to win a national championship and contend regularly in the Big Ten. Yeah. That's all. That, that, that's it. That's all you look at, really. Um, the downside is you got a fan base that is obsessive and large and active, and there's pressure. I mean, if if you're not prepared to meet that, it's not the right place for you. But I think most of the names on their list are guys who have already demonstrated they want to they want to do that. So, but we can talk about some of the names real quick and then eliminate. Well, I mean, Brad Stevens is the one I keep hearing. That's not gonna, crazy. Crazy. He about. came out on the radio today in Boston. He's, he's flattered, but no. And, no. and I can tell you. <laughs> No, it'll, it, I don't think Brad Stevens will ever coach another day in college. Not unless it's far into the future and he takes a job at a place that it's not in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding is, and this is not unique to me, it's well-circulated information in the basketball world, is Brad Stevens does not like recruiting. Oh. And so if you imagine him being in a spot with all the stuff we were just talking about, where your roster is year to year now, you're not just recruiting high school kids, you're recruiting your own kids to keep them, you're recruiting transfers from other places. No. I don't I don't know if he's going to be in Boston forever, but I don't think he's coming back to college, and he sure as hell isn't taking the Indiana job. So that's a pipe dream. Eliminate that one. Um, Nate Oates came out mm. and said that um, he is not interested. And Nate Oates that's has good. a gigantic buyout right now so i think that's probably a pretty safe assumption and honestly for him you know i this this came up because nate oates coached at romulus a lot of michigan state fans look at him and think well that's the next guy after Izzo. i don't i don't think the timing's going to be right he's already got a high major job I, that did not i don't understand why in the hell he took that alabama job that doesn't make any sense to me well, he wound up. It, I mean, it wound up working. So, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you why. One reason is, although the SEC is not the basketball capital of the world outside of Lexington, um, you can, as he's proving this year, he's got yeah. a two seed with that team. You can, you can get to Final Fours. I mean, the last time, last time we had a tournament, Auburn was there. Yeah. So you can get to a Final Four. Um, and the thing is, the SEC with the revenue they get from the SEC network, it's the only conference that can aspire to go toe-to-toe with the Big Ten on the financial side. So when you're talking about guys at some other, even other high major places, a school like Indiana, I think money could be a factor where you could go in and just outspend uh, a, a Big 12, a Pac-12, a Big East. You could You could outspend those people. Maybe not the ACC, even though they don't have the, the contract, the uh, TV contract revenue. They care so much about basketball. Most of those schools that that's a different story. But but the, when you're talking about the SEC, that's a lot tougher. Indiana, There's a lot of good. Uh, the SEC seems to be a, a conference that's really attractive to coaches recently. I mean, there's a lot of great coaches in there. Now. It's what I'm just talking about. It's money. They're paying these guys. Mm-hmm. They're paying them huge salaries. I mean, yeah, it's easy to understand, you know. So you want to know why Nate Oates took that job. That's why. He had a high major job, which you got to be really careful just turning those down if you're at a max school. Yeah. You know, if somebody offers you one, you got to think about it long and hard. 
And then, you know, when, when they're paying you that much and they're offering infrastructure improvements and, you know, all the other things SEC schools are doing, it makes sense to me. Yeah. But I, I, I don't rule out that NATO might eventually look elsewhere, but I think it's going to be really difficult to get that guy to move or anybody really from an SEC school because it's kind of like the Big Ten. You're, these guys are being paid so much because of the, the conference television revenue, among other things, uh-huh. that you can't just – if you're a program trying to hire away one of those guys, you can't just go in and say, well, we're going to double your salary or triple your salary because if they want to keep the guy, they, they'll have the financial wherewithal to match you. And, yeah. and so you, it's going to be a tough job. So I don't I mean, see that. God knows how much money Alabama has. <laughs> He's right. Football revenue. right, right, right. God almighty. And, and so then we get around to two names, one of which I think, may, think makes a lot of sense at a certain level. The other, oh, Steve Alford is out too, by the way, in case anybody thought that was realistic, which it never was. No. That doesn't um, make any but, sense. Uh, he's right. But it was mentioned and he, he denied that he was looking to move from Nevada. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Never was going to happen. I think uh, one name for sure to watch, although last I saw there was a report this afternoon that he hadn't supposedly had not yet been contacted, which is weird to me, is Scott Drew from Baylor. Um, Scott Drew is an Indiana guy. He went to Butler, I believe. He coached at Valpo. His dad and brother coached at Valpo. He was in a, um, you know, he's a, He's an Indiana kid, and for as much success as he's had at Baylor, I suspect that if Indiana said, we are just going to throw everything we got at getting this guy, and he was going to make that decision based on that, on finances, Indiana could probably win that one. That's my guess. It might not matter. He might feel he definitely feels like he can win at Baylor. That's been proven, so yeah. that's not an issue. But he might feel like you know I I like it here, and I'm not inclined to go home. Maybe you know, um, but I, I and he's proven to be a hell of a coach. I have heard things about him as a recruiter. I don't know that that's the guy you want in the Big Ten, but. Um, it, we might be getting back into a point when I look at some of the names with that job and the Minnesota job after a long period of time where pretty much everybody in the Big Ten's played it straight in recruiting. Mm. We might we might be going back to the future a little bit. We just have to see how these sort out. Uh, but from a pure basketball standpoint, look, Scott Drew is a very good basketball coach. He's proven to be a program builder. Uh, his teams are entertaining to watch. They play really hard. They like to play fast. I think his style would be would play well at Indiana, and I think that that's a name to watch. But again, I'm kind of surprised that the story was they hadn't reached out to him yet. I, I wouldn't read a lot into that, but he'd be the number one choice in terms of realistic guys, which Stevens is not, in mm-hmm. my opinion, and I don't think Oates is either. Um, he'd be the number one guy. And then the other name you keep hearing mentioned is Chris Beard at Texas Tech. Chris Beard's only connection is he was an assistant to Bob Knight at Texas Tech. I don't think that's a very strong connection. <laughs> Why but again, would it be? Yeah. It's well, this is where people go, but yeah, it's not. Obviously an excellent coach. You know, outstanding. 
I think he's proven as much as anybody among this new breed of guys. It's probably my favorite. Um, that would be world, a step up for him, though. If he can do um, what he's doing at Texas Tech, at Indiana, it, it It would. And, again, just as with Baylor, Indiana could probably nuke Texas Tech financially. Although I would – I shouldn't be so quick to say that because right now Chris Beard is, I think, in the top five in terms of salary. Texas Tech, after that Final Four run, opened the vaults. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, Indiana could get stupid with the money. I mean, just silly if they so choose. They they could. With with the combination of Big Ten network revenues and how much alums and how much that school cares about basketball, they could. They absolutely could. So – I don't rule that out, but the word for the last couple of years is he's a Texas alum and that he's waiting on the Texas job. That's what circulates out there. Now, with Shaka Smart, he finally had a good year this year. I see his name associated with jobs because I think there's a suspicion that Shaka might be looking at this as a get out of there ahead of the posse move which you yeah. see guys make occasionally. Steve Alford did that with Iowa, got out of there, took off for New Mexico, right? Um, he wasn't going to be fired, but he got out. Shaka, that, that's the word. If he were to leave Texas, um, Chris Beard, supposedly, that's his dream job. So would he take the, the Indiana job if offered? I don't know. Again, I think financially, although they're paying him a lot now, IU could get stupid with it. They could. They have that capability. Um, and I don't know how much higher Texas Tech can go than where they're already at. But those are two names to think about. I, I saw something this afternoon, don't know the veracity, but claimed that Indiana has already talked to Porter Moser, the head coach at Loyola Chicago. Mm. Um, I think the fan base would revolt. And not because he's not a good coach, but that's just not how Indiana – Indiana sees themselves – when you're talking about Scott Drew, Chris Beard, you know, Nate Oates, these kind of people, that's how Indiana sees itself. Yeah, yeah. They do not see themselves as Porter Moser, you know. And in fairness, they've never gone that route. I mean, even Archie Miller, you could say, well, it was Dayton's not really a mid-major. That's at the very least a mid-major plus job in the Atlantic 10. And um, he was a guy that was – wanted by everybody so I, I don't count that the last time indiana went with a guy with that kind of profile was bob knight from army um you know <laughs> kelvin sampson was not that they took kelvin sampson from oklahoma yeah so you know and and obviously tom crane from marquette so i don't know about that but supposedly that was the word i'm going to throw one more wild card in there and then we should probably move on to the other two jobs and, and then finally get into the the real meat of this, which is UCLA. Um, John Beeline's name. Yeah, I've been hearing that. Yeah. I don't think so. And the reason I say I don't think so is everything I've heard about him, it kind of gets back to the, the Brad Stevens thing. Everything I've heard about him is he had grown exhausted by recruiting by the kind of alum responsibilities that the not everything that doesn't have to do with getting in a gym and practicing or right. playing game that he got worn out by a Michigan and that's why he went to the Cavs. Um, so 
why am I expected to believe that with a year off, he wants to get into a situation that is even hotter in Indiana, where the attention is greater than at Michigan? People care more about it than they do at Michigan. I just don't believe that. The other thing is from the Indiana point of view, he's 68 years old. So what are you signing on for really? You know, are you really that desperate that you think, well, I, you know, and, and is John Beeline going to turn that around in one year? You know, that, you, yeah, that doesn't seem likely. If you, right. If you look at John Beeline's experience at Michigan, that took him, you know, three years, four years to get any semblance and really more like five or six to really get them to a point that they were legit. Um, he doesn't have that kind of time, you know, now maybe you think, well, he's learned some things through his Michigan experience and it wouldn't take as long. Maybe, but you know, obviously a hell of a basketball coach from that perspective, it's a great move, but I just don't see it as likely. So I see him settling like at some point into like a random mid major job. There you go. You know, I agree. Some place where he can just be a basketball coach. Yeah. The pressure's way down. He can enjoy himself. I mean, he, he, he had his crack at the big time for a long run. Very successful, especially the back half of it. And, and I would think that's probably satisfying. Unless he's got a, a burning desire to win a national championship that I don't think he does. You know, he got to title games twice. So he had his crack at it. You can't say that. I just, I don't see it. Yeah. So to me, it's you start with Drew and and maybe a Chris Beard, and you throw whatever you can at them, and then if you get past them and and those moves don't work, I don't know where it goes. It's going to be very interesting because Indiana is one of those places that you know, as they proved with both um, with both Sampson and Crane, they can go get a guy yeah. who's already done things. They can do that. Um, it just, I don't know if the, I don't know if the, uh, the timing's, uh, right for, um, for the guys that would seem to be at the top of the wish list, but mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see. So that'll be a fascinating one. Cause that, that really has seismic implications in the big 10, because that's a program that, as you said, you're worried about who the next guy's going to be and, and are they going to bring IU back to where you kind of think they could be? Yeah. Well, that's everybody else right yeah i mean as long as i use like 12 uh, you know 10 and 10 every year i think that's a win overall for everybody else (laughs) yes absolutely absolutely if you're in ann arbor or columbus or especially a place like Uh champaign-urbana or or west lafayette indiana you really worry about this you really do or you should so in any event, so that's Indiana. So what about uh, Penn second, State? Well, they just hired they a didn't, guy. They didn't go uh, for Jim Ferry. Does that surprise you? For Jim Ferry? No. Yeah. No. I think that uh, I think that the, the bottom line there was he had to get them basically to a – he was a caretaker. He had to get them to a, a tournament bid, which was always highly unlikely. Um and I, 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 that didn't happen. They didn't really come close to the end. So, no, I was not remotely surprised. Um, there was a lot of speculation at one point about Dennis Gates, who is the head coach at Cleveland State, has done a hell of a job yeah. in his first two years there at the Horizon League. He's got a lot of experience as an assistant, and he's still young. He's a Chicago guy. 
So that would seem to tick a lot of boxes, right? Mm-hmm. Well, hire him. I'm not even clear how far that got. And then there was a lot of assistant talk, and they, they ended up hiring Micah Shrewsbury, who is an assistant. And he has um, he had a long-standing run with Brad Stevens. He was on his staff at Butler. He was uh, an assistant for those teams that, Michigan State fans are familiar with that made it to -to back-to-back Final Fours. Uh, He then did two years as an assistant at Purdue um, with uh, good years for them with Matt Painter. Um, Then he jumped back with Stevens, did five years in the NBA as an assistant for the Celtics, and then he came back to Purdue the last two years. So that's great. I mean, this is a guy who has Big Ten experience, He's got big-time basketball experience as an assistant. He has NBA experience. There's a lot of things to like there. Um, he is, I'm trying to recall where he's from. Um, he's from Indiana. So he's a, a guy who is, you know, definitely got a Big Ten regional background, right? Mm. For, for what Penn State can do, um, I, I don't, you know, Gates was a popular choice and that might have made more sense. I don't know, but I can't really bag on this choice except I ask again, as I annually do at this time of year, why is DJ Stevens not getting a real crack? His name got mentioned tangentially in relation to this job. I don't know that, I don't think he ever even got an interview. This guy's got a nice track record. You know, been to a couple Final Fours. He's coached in the Big Ten on a couple stints, been in the NBA. That's all cool. He doesn't have the resume DJ Stevens does. No. He just doesn't. I mean, that's I'm sorry. He doesn't. So you're making a decision, I guess, based on something else. I mean, There's Jesus, no and why make that decision so quickly? I mean, yeah. Well, they obviously, most of these teams aren't even, you know, they're still playing. They obviously zeroed in on him, and he was their guy. So you got to respect that, I guess. But Penn State's also proven over the years to not make great decisions when it comes to their basketball program. Um, so I don't see any reason to necessarily default to the idea that, well, they got this one right. I just, from an MSU perspective, I just, you know, and again, in this one, sometimes I feel like the issue with, with DJ has been the same one that it is for African-American coaches in general, getting a fair shake, right? Yeah. That it doesn't always happen. Well, Shrewsbury is also African-American, so that's clearly not the issue here. I just, I don't understand. And it, and it could be that DJ's like, I don't want to go to that place as a coach's graveyard. That could be it too. And it, and it would be correct. It's a very tough job. But on the other hand, if you're an assistant and somebody's handing out a high major job anywhere, you kind of have to take it. I mean, it's really tough to turn one of those down. That's not yeah. turning down Cleveland State. Because that doesn't That's, come around very often. One no, every they don't. three years, maybe. They don't, yeah. And so I just I'm, – I'm Especially a offended. Big Ten job. I'm offended for him because I look at it and I think, well, this is a guy who's another Big Ten assistant who, nice again, nice career, has not done what D.J. Stevens has done. Hmm. Sorry, there, there's not an assistant in America, I would venture to, to say, and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. There's not an assistant in America who has a better track record if you are measuring it by being on the coaching staff of Final Four teams 
conference champions, putting guys in the pros, um, development specifically of guys who go to the pros because he's MSU's big man coach. He's also yeah. in charge of the substitution patterns. I mean, he's an associate head coach. He's not just an assistant. I don't get it, but I don't want to dwell on it too much. They chose Shrewsbury fine. I just, I, I, I feel if it's something that DJ wants, which I, I have an understanding that he does, I, I'm just offended every goddamn year that we go down this route and, and to see him, to see other guys who don't have resumes that match his. Because mm-hmm. nobody does as an assistant. I go to the wall on that. There isn't anybody yeah. who bears his resume. Um, I agree. Absolutely. I do not have them. So I that's my big man. I mean, gosh, State. they've been outstanding. I, in, in term, yeah. And of in terms of. Right. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> Look at what he's done. You know, we're yeah, not people all like Derek Nix. I mean, my gosh. There's well, just, you can go down the line. Derek Nix. Uh, Adrian Payne. Adrian Payne. From where he was, and Adrian Payne had a lot of potential, but from where he was as a freshman to what he became, an NBA draft pick, come on. You know, Matt Costello, I mean, on and on and on. You can you can cite guys, uh, Draymond Green. Draymond Green will tell you that it's a travesty. Yeah, yeah. The DJ has, is not a head coach already. I mean, I've seen him say it on social media. Mm-hmm. For years, he's been saying it, and he's right. There was that so, one. He had an interview just recently about somebody asked him about um, setting picks. They're like, you yeah. know, what? What do you? Why do you like setting picks so much? Like, what? What are you so excited about? Or you know, where? Where do you get that love for it? And he said straight up, and he's sitting there in the Warriors, um, you know, press conference that goes all the way back to uh, Michigan State and right. uh, Dwayne Stevens. Yep. I mean, he he called that guy out right national TV about that right. stuff. And and he's not fit to coach at your half-ass school. Come on. Now again, a lot of these openings, I'm sure he doesn't. He's not really that interested in Michigan State. You know, it's notoriously been you don't just take any job; you take a place, you take a job at a place where you can win. Um, but oh, come on. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. turning back to to wrap up Penn State real quickly, we mentioned six guys already in the transfer portal. So Shrewsbury's got his work cut out for him. Um, he's got two choices basically successfully re-recruit at least some of those guys or hit the transfer portal himself hard. And I don't know how that's going to go, but he's got a big challenge in front of him. And, and all these guys hit the portal right after Penn state announced, not, not when it was, you know, not at the end of the season. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that would suggest it's a reaction to that. I don't know what that means. And I wouldn't rule any outcome out completely, but he's, He's got a challenge in front of him. Uh, and then the third one, uh, Richard Patino, um, up yeah. in Minnesota. That one, <laughs> that one's a little bit, probably the most surprising to me, I guess. Maybe, really? maybe not so more, so much more than passing up on Jim Ferry, but. Yeah, yeah not but, me. I, I mean, it, it seemed, well, why was it surprising to you? Let's start with that. Oh. I don't know. I, I guess I, I just Minnesota's had some good teams. They've had some good players. He's been a, a good recruiter. Um, okay, just, we're gonna I, get into that. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. I, know I think that's his downfall. Recruiting in terms of like, well, he got Marcus Carr. 
he found him. You know, that guy's awesome. Uh, Oturu, um, they've just, they've had players. Uh, he just hasn't seemed to, maybe he's not as good a tactician, maybe, as his dad. I, I don't know, but. Wow, he's, <laughs> that's an unfair. Look, I, <laughs> whenever you think about Rick Patino as a human being, um, I think mo, I think the general consensus in the basketball world, I, I think this is a fair statement, is Rick Patino was the best pure basketball coach in the world. Yeah. Talk about a chess master. So that's like, a he's standard. Nobody's going to match. I don't, I don't judge him by that standard, but I wasn't surprised. And the reason is, I think, I think he just, he got a long rope, man. Yeah, he, he did. Was, he, he was on the rope. People forget. You know how many years he's been there? I think it's nine. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's a lot of time. And he did produce the occasional. He had a couple good teams, including <laughs> the team two years ago that Michigan State beat in the second round. Um, but that's not enough. And and the problem is he just didn't – he did two things. He didn't succeed enough in wins and losses, which is fairly obvious. Yeah. Two NCAA tournament appearances in whatever it was, eight or nine years. That's, you know, even at Minnesota, which is not Indiana, that's, that's not enough. You know, Minnesota should, in my view, Minnesota is a program that should aspire to being a tournament team at least half the time. Yeah. And maybe once every four years or five years, you have a team that can cycle up and contend in the conference. That's how it used to be. That's how it was under Clem Haskins. How, that's how it was under Jim Dutcher. Um, you know, that was kind of the pattern with them. They weren't, they weren't Indiana. Um, you know, they weren't at the top of the conference, but they were a team that was in a, a solid middle class in the Big Ten. Really not very different in those years than Michigan State. Yeah. We weren't, you know, it was like, okay, every, every couple of years, they're going to have a tournament team. And maybe once every four or five, they're going to have a team that can push at the top of the league. Um, they have not been that for a long time. They haven't been that since Clem Haskins left. And that runs through three coaches now. now. I personally thought it was a mistake to fire Tubby Smith. Tubby Smith got fired after making the tournament, by the way, to refresh people's memory. He had a tournament team and they fired him. Um, yeah. I didn't understand it at the time. I thought it was a bad move, and I think what history has shown us is it was the wrong move. Mm-hmm. Um, or at, le- at the very least, that the guy they hired to replace him was not the right choice. He didn't make things better. I think the other very damning thing for Richard Patino, and this is the part I don't understand, because I figured at a minimum what he would probably be able to do is recruit well. He has done a terrible job in state. Terrible. Um, the state of Minnesota has arguably been at a peak in terms of talent production during his time as head coach at Minnesota. You may not realize it, but you can look around the country and find guys from the state of Minnesota who are big time players elsewhere. Yeah. Now, the, the bigger names we know, Tyus Jones, um, uh, Trey Jones, um, uh, Rashad Vaughn. Are the Hurts from? Minnesota? Yep, the Hurts. Exactly, exactly. He got the lesser of them. He didn't get the one who can actually play. Um, you know, uh, this year, 
in their in the rising you know the senior class, Chet Holmgren, whose dad played at Minnesota. They're not they're not going to get him. They never had a chance. Oh, you know gosh. the high end guys they had no chance at. Okay, fine. That'll you know that happens when your program's been down a little bit. And you got all the big timers operating in your Oh, Jalen Suggs. How can I forget that at Gonzaga? I think he's my favorite player in the country this year. He's a Minnesota kid. Oh, so I, haven't got, I haven't gotten any of those guys, but it goes deeper. You have guys going at Wisconsin during the Bo Ryan era and on into Greg Gard's time has lived on Minnesota kids. Reavers and um, Davison are Minnesota kids. Okay? And, and I can go down the list. Basically, the only three top 100 in-state kids during Patino's years, and that's a lot of years now, that they landed, if I remember correctly, would be Amir Coffey, who was a good get. Michigan State was in on him, so that he was a good get. And then Oturu and Kalisher. That's it. That's not enough. You need a guy. If, if you have somebody in that job who just gets his share of top 100 players. And again, rule out the McDonald's All-American little guys if you want. Mm-hmm. Just say, get get the, the vast majority of the 50 to 100 guys. Yeah. That's enough. You'll have, a, you'll have a team that does at least what I just talked about, you know, every other year. You'll have at least that, that could attack. So whoever comes in has got to, in my mind, set that as a target. They've got to do what the Jim Dutchers and the Clem Haskins did in their day, which is they get the kids in Minnesota for the most part, mm. you know, and, and if you can do that, then you're in business. Um, the, the big names are two guys that are associated with Minnesota basketball deeply. Both of them had fathers who were head coaches there. Eric Musselman at Arkansas and Brian Dutcher at San Diego State. And I think those are the two those are the two most prominent names and they're the ones that I would pay the most attention to early. Funnily enough, there are a lot of guys with good mid major programs who have connections to the state or the school. Mm-hmm. Utah State, who's in the NCAA tournament, their head coach has connections. Uh Colorado State's head coach who were on the bubble yeah. making the tournament. Their coach has Connections. Drake's head coach, who was in the NCAA tournament, has connections. So there's a lot of those kind of guys, but I think you start even maybe Porter Moser, who doesn't have connections, but as a Chicago guy has been mentioned. I think you start though with those first two. Um, Musselman's dad was head coach in the early 70s, a very ugly period for this is even predates my time, but I've certainly heard the stories. Um, his father was known for a um, kind of thuggish brand of basketball, so they said. That was the that was the description of it. And there was a particular incident uh, in a game with Ohio State where Ohio State star center Luke Whitty got punched out. And it that <laughs> some other scan. Dave Winfield was involved in that. By the way, the great the baseball player, punk, baseball player. Yeah, he <laughs> played basketball in Minnesota too. He was on the floor, I believe, during that incident, but. Um, in any event, uh, that and that some other scandals led to uh, his father being fired. Uh, he's the head coach at Arkansas, though, who is a three seed, I believe. So you're talking about the same situation as Nate Oates, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, 
It's SEC money. He's only in his second year there. Right. Same thing as Nate Oates. He's had great success. He was at Nevada before this. Yeah. He'd kind of been a vagabond before that. He bounced around between college and the NBA. Um, but he really did a nice job at Nevada using, you know, heavy use of transfers. Remember that a few years back, maybe three years ago, they had the Martin twins yeah. who transferred from NC State. Nevada was really good and then did a belly flop in the tournament. But, you know, did a nice job, did enough to get hired at Arkansas. Last year, he won 20 games. They were not going to be a tournament team because the SEC wasn't great. He wasn't great in the league, but, you know, still a decent start. And then this year, they've been great. Uh, I don't think he's going to leave. And I don't think Minnesota can probably go in and just outspend Arkansas. And I, I think they would have to do that by a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my opinion, you know. Um, maybe Musselman is a guy that Indiana might say. I haven't seen his name mentioned, but they would maybe be a little bit different scenario, but I don't think Minnesota. Um, but then Brian Dutcher is a different story. Reportedly, Brian Dutcher has an out in his contract for Minnesota. His dad coached there after Musselman's dad did. Oh, wow. A lot of success. He was, he was the guy who coached Michael Thompson. He coached Kevin McHale, Trent Tucker, a lot of NBA guys, had some really good teams. And then again, Scandal. I mean, that's the problem is when Minnesota was successful, there was always a bad end. It happened with Musselman, it happened with Dutcher, and then it happened with Clem Haskins. Um, and those are the three coaches who won. But, but anyway, Brian Dutcher went to the University of Minnesota. His dad was the head coach there. He then was a longtime assistant at Michigan with Steve Fisher. Um, oh, and then followed him over to San Diego State yeah. and succeeded him. Um, Michigan State fans probably don't have any reasons to have warm feelings about Brian Dutcher. You know, <laughs> he was involved in all that stuff. No, that yeah. You know about. Um, but he has proven to be a very good coach. People forget because of the COVID thing, but San Diego State was a national story last year. They had Malachi Flynn, who was in the mix for, you know, that player of the year nationally. Yeah. Um, their team was outstanding. He's followed it up with another good year. They're six seed um, without Flynn. Uh, he can recruit. Now, you can fairly ask, can he do it cleanly? I don't know. But, um, <laughs> San Diego is a long way from Minnesota. If he can do it there, you'd think, well. He's the guy I think they should hire. Because um, he's apparently, my only question was, well, those years in San Diego, might that be enough in terms of the lifestyle? He's also not young. He's 62. Oh, so wow. might he have just kind of figured, you know what? I'm good where I'm at. That time, maybe five years ago, ten years ago would have interested me, but not now. I don't know. But but then I'm hearing that I've read some places that um, uh, people in San Diego think it's a real possibility he takes the job. And that, again, supposedly he has an out in his contract for the Minnesota job. If that stuff's true, and there's no doubt in my mind, Minnesota can just go and outspend San Diego State. It's not even a question. So he'd be the guy, I would think, would be the target. And this is what I was mentioning. If you got, say, Scott Drew ended up in Indiana and Dutcher ended up in Minnesota, I'm not saying it's a certainty, but I would have concerns about what that means 
for Big Ten recruiting going forward. Because again, it's been, it's been a pretty nice 20 year run in this league. <laughs> yeah. It really has. We're, we're, for the most part, you know, Steer they're just of Indiana. Yeah. In the way of shenanigans. Yeah. You know, and as long as there's not, not now, I guess the other thing too is with, with maybe what's on the horizon with NIL rights and all that stuff, maybe a lot of the incentive and even possibilities around cheating will shift. But that would be my one, that would be one concern. The other concern is look, if you got, I think objectively, Brian Dutcher is a better basketball coach than Richard Pitino. I think he's done more clearly. Yeah. And I just think he's better. And those San Diego State teams have been hellacious defensively. I mean, just really, really good. So it would make the neighborhood tougher. Mm-hmm. That's why I'd do it if I were Minnesota. The other guys that I think are realistic, and again, I don't think Musselman is, um, are mid-major guys. And might they catch lightning in the bottle? You know, all those guys have done some things. I'm not denigrating them, but they have not proven Dutcher at San Diego State, that's more of a mid-major plus. That's mm-hmm. up a level from from Drake and Colorado State even. Um, you know, they're just it's a little bit better. It might be in the same league as Colorado State, come to think of it, but I think they're a better program. And and so to me, he's done much more, and that's where I'd go. But yeah. in any event, that's... Well, we and, we and, think that's going to be it, too, in terms of coaching changes. I mean, I, I've seen occasionally people talk about Chris Collins, but I don't think that's going to happen because I think he's getting ready to maybe cycle up a little bit more. I also have seen some speculation today. Iowa State's job opened about Fred Hoiberg going back. I, I don't think that'll happen. I, I just think Nebraska's resources, that, that I don't see why he would trade that, even if it's his alma mater. Mm-hmm. He's been there and done that. I just I don't think that's possible. So I think this is going to be it. It'll be these three jobs. And, and you know the way the Big Ten's performed the last three years, it, it's really started to take on like what the S, or ACC used to be. I mean, you almost wonder if this is like the Big Ten is like the new, you know, next step up for those guys. Whether it's in the SEC, those guys move into Minnesota or yeah. uh, Indiana. The, the- the only the only issue with that is that again the money has changed because of these conference television deals. Yeah. yeah. And and that's that's put the even though the SEC on the basketball quality level is not what you're talking about. It's a good league, but it's there are years where the SEC is not great. Mm. That's still true. Yeah. Um but the money has ch- that equation. I really do think there's a there's a school of thought that you know we talk about power fives all the time. That the real truth of the matter is you got a power two or an ultra power two, the Big Ten and the SEC, and then those other three leagues fitting in below them, mm-hmm. the ACC, Big Twelve, the Pac twelve, because financially those schools are not at the same level as the schools in the Big Ten and the SEC. Basketball They're behind the ball on the network. Yeah, basketball matters more in the ACC, for sure, than it does in the SEC. But 
I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I look, I, I'm a Big Ten partisan. I think the Big Ten's always been great. Yeah. Um, you know, for as long as I can remember, it, it was a Big Ten in the ACC, and I still kind of feel that year in, year out, that's the basketball universe, the order of things. Um, but financially, in terms of being able to poach a guy from another big-time school, like if you're in Indiana or, God forbid, when the time comes, Michigan State, that I mean, Michigan went through this two years ago, right? Mm. D-line leaves, and they had trouble. Now, it's worked out thus far, but Juwan Howard was not the top guy on that list. Yeah. And when it got down to it, my understanding was the other guy who was a likely choice, other than Juwan Howard, was Ed Cooley at Providence. Mm-hmm. Ed Cooley's a good coach, but we're not talking about Scott Drew, Chris Beard. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it wasn't easy for Michigan. That's I, I just think financially, if you're going to go – Outside of the SEC to go get somebody, okay, you got a shot, maybe. Um, that's where money could have an impact. But, man, trying to get somebody out of the SEC, or like I said, the same thing, the Big Ten. The guys who have left the Big Ten for other jobs, I'm trying to think about who's left the Big Ten willingly for another job in the last 20 years. Steve Alford did it for New Mexico to just get out of Dodge. Yeah, that wasn't a step that up. Happened. <laughs> um, John Beeline left for the pros. Lon Kruger left for the pros. Um, is there anybody else? I'm trying. Oh, Bill Self left for Kansas. Okay, that's yeah. That's yeah. That's one. Um, but but that's also a, a lifetime ago. The Big Ten Network didn't exist then. I don't know if Bill Self leaves now with the money. I just mm-hmm. don't know. It's the dynamic has changed. So anyway, lots to chew on, and we're going to have, trust me, with with this and with uh, especially the Indiana job is just going to be crazy. Um, and all these transfers, we're going to have a lot to talk about over the ensuing weeks. Yeah, oh, yeah. All right, well, um, so we'll get started here on UCLA, Rod. Um, I, I, I'll just – Come out and, and fire this off. I think this is a blowout win for Michigan State. I think it's a great matchup for them. Um, you look at UCLA; uh, they're 44th overall in Ken Palm, 26th on de- on offense, 86 on defense. Um, conversely, MSU is 98 on offense, 32 on defense. Um, yeah. 17 and nine um, overall, 30, 13 and six in the Pac-12. Um, Two and seven against NCAA tournament teams coming into this. They've lost four straight. Uh, and that was the uh, Oregon State loss in the Pac-10 tournament. Uh, my just basic uh, overall take on this is I watch Pac-12 actually probably a lot more than people would think because like, we do our podcast and then it's like I'm, I'm editing it at like 10, 30, 11 at night or something. And they're just pac 12 games on. So you're getting and, a lot of Bill Walton in your diet. I, I, yeah. You know, and it's not like I never watch like a game all the way through. It's just like a bunch of 20 minute things. Right. But it is unbelievable how many wide open three pointers or just wide open shots in general you see in these Pac 12 games. Yeah. I, they're just, I just don't think they're going to have any answer for yep. Michigan State's defense. 
it's, it's, a, it's not going to be like what they face like in the Pac-12. I, I think there's some truth in that. You know, it's it's interesting you mentioned that. Um, I'll give a shout out to Jim Comperoni at Spartan Mag. He he did a podcast where he included some video from their Pac-12 tournament loss to Oregon State to illustrate some of what he was talking about. I think he'd also watched the entirety of a, a recent game they lost against Oregon, and it demonstrated exactly what you're talking about. The, yeah, the, the whole Pac-12 is like that. Yeah, that's his point. Now, he made the point. He said, you know, we, well, he, what he didn't know is, was that a result maybe of officiating? He used as a reference, 2003, the Big Ten decided to crack down on um, physical contact. So the old stuff you used to be able to do, like um, uh, making contact with a guy cutting through the lane, the old Antonio Smith forearm shiver, mm. you know, cutter, that that was a point of emphasis, and they, they basically ruled it out of existence. And so Michigan State had to adjust to that just to survive Big Ten play. And they had a nice tournament run. They get to the Elite Eight where they face Texas. And Texas hadn't played that way because the Big 12 wasn't officiated that way, and this tournament game wasn't officiated that way. And so they obviously, Michigan State, was suddenly playing a style they weren't really prepared for because they hadn't played that way all year due to officiating. And it cost them. They lost that game. Uh, so his point was, well, maybe they're playing this way because they have to. I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I mean, either. I think that the, I think that, look, it's, 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 gets talked about so often that it's a cliche, you know, the softness of West Coast teams. Tom Izzo's press conference today, boy, he tried to gin it up. And I do think in time, Mick Cronin, who is their coach, he's in his second year there, longtime coach at, um, Cincinnati. Yeah. I believe he was an assistant. I think it was an assistant to Rick Pitino at Louisville before that, I think. Um, his teams at Cincinnati were blood and guts kind yeah, of teams. tough, yeah. And I do think he will get that happening at UCLA. I do. I, From what I saw, and I've seen a little – I saw a little bit of their game against Ohio State back months ago in December. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I saw, you're right and comp's right. They're just soft. He hasn't reached them yet. Uh, there's some talent. There's some guys on the perimeter, especially they got a bunch of six five, six six, six seven guys who can do a lot of things offensively, but they are not a physically tough team. If Michigan State, two things, to your point about a blowout win, if Michigan State can muster up the physicality that we've seen most of the time over the last three, four weeks, and if they're allowed to play physically by the officials, I do think it could be an easy win. Yeah. I think it's possible. Um, but those are unknowns, particularly the second part, the officiating. Do they allow them to play with some force? Because if they don't, well, then we're, we're back to foul trouble and we're back to a team shooting free throws, and who knows what happens then. Mm-hmm. And you know, Michigan State handled these guys easily last year, and it's relatively the same team. Um, this is a third the addition. Year in a row. Of, this is the third year in a row they played them because if you remember, yeah, the team that went to the Final Four yeah. saw them in uh, Las Vegas, yeah, and yeah. and beat them pretty handily. Yep, uh, and that was Steve Alford. This one's Mick. Yep. Last year was Mick Cronin that they beat Correct. fairly handily. Um, and Maui, right? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, Maui. They lost or they beat Chaminade, and Michigan State lost to Virginia Tech, and then they wound up playing UCLA, like in a play or like a an after, loser bracket. Loser yeah. bracket, yeah. Yep. But uh, it's essentially the same team. I mean, they they don't have their two um, big guys, Chris Smith um, and Jalen Hill. Yeah, and those are losses because those that yeah. gives them a lot more size. There's some injury trouble or somebody quit the team. I can't remember which was which, but, um, yeah, that, that hurt them because, uh, they don't have a lot of size to begin with, which is another good thing for Michigan State, right? This is yeah. not a team that's going to roll out a Coburn, a Garza, a Dickinson. This is, and yet on the other hand, it's also not Maryland. Yeah. Like their big guy is, he plays down low, Cody Riley, guy. but he's not like a six, five, like going to stretch out and shoot threes right. either. And, and on the other hand, he's not a behemoth that's going to give you problems that way. Yeah. So, uh, so on offense, they're 83 in effective field goal percentage, um, 37% shooting team from three, which is high, but they don't take many of them. Just 18 that, attempts a game. I don't understand it. It's the best thing they do. <laughs> and yet they just don't take very many of them. So go figure that out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was weird. 131 um, in twos, 84 in offensive rebounding, and 62 in turnover percentage. Yeah, the profile is solid. You know, there's nothing except maybe the three-point shooting that really captures your attention. Like, wow, that's pretty good. But but overall, there's not a ton of weaknesses there offensively. They're a pretty decent offensive team. Mm-hmm. Again, the question is... How will they function against a Big Ten defense that yeah. is playing pretty well? I mean, Michigan State's gotten all – remember when we were back in the, the non-conference schedule, Michigan State was having all kinds of problems guarding anybody. Mm. And they ended up 32nd against a Big Ten schedule, against the best of the best, and they still got all the way up to 32nd in in uh, uh, adjusted effective defense. Uh, defensive efficiency, rather. Um, Michigan State is, in my opinion, a good to very good defensive team overall right now. Mm. On the perimeter, they're an outstanding defensive team generally, at least in terms of limiting threes. They're, they're not quite as consistent in terms of containing dribble penetration. They can get hurt occasionally by a really good post player. But by and large, this has become a good defensive team. And and a team stylistically, I don't think UCLA sees a lot of. Yeah, in terms I, of the physicality, like the Pac-12 is number two in three-point percentage at like thirty-five point six or something like that. Yeah, the Big Ten is like way down there. It's like twenty-sixth or something like that. Yeah, but it's like you watch these games and like they're getting wide open threes. They're yeah. not going to well, see think... threes like against Michigan State that they would typically see. Right. Which is part of what I'm part of what I'm getting at. Yeah. yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how how well it flows for UCLA when they're facing a team that actually is going to check yeah. and is going to get physical. Uh, so seventy two percent from the line, um, and they don't get a whole lot of heavy ball movement on offense. You know, one hundred seventy seven in uh, assists per field goal. Uh, MSU is six, so they yeah. just kind of put on the Gorton jacket. <laughs> yep, 
or or look to get to the rim. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on defense, it's even worse, really. Uh, 198 in effective field goal percentage against. That's really bad compared yeah. to what Michigan State's been seeing. This is a worse team in that way defensively than anyone Michigan State's seen in the Big Ten. Iowa, Ohio State, Nebraska, you name it. These guys are way worse. Yeah. Uh, they don't force turnovers. Uh, and they give up a lot of threes, surprisingly. 22 a game yeah. uh, at 35% success rate, which is an average for the conference. I'm, I'm <laughs> not sure. I'm not sure if that's good or bad for Michigan State. You would hope yeah. that what that means is they shoot a better percentage because these guys are softer. But you know, my instinct would think that they're going to look at Michigan State's shooting numbers and be like, "Well, we'll just let them jack threes all day." Right. Uh, eh, that's probably not a good idea for them. But 156 against twos. They don't foul a ton. Um, but they are a very good defensive rebounding team, 37. Yeah. Re- re- rebounding is the one area that I feel like Cronin's um, philosophy is maybe gaining a foothold. Defensively, it, it's not there yet. His teams at Cincinnati were blood and guts, physical and good mm-hmm. on the defensive end for the most part. This, this team is nowhere near that. He has not reached – that team yet he hasn't remade that roster i guess is the other way you could say it um in his, in the image that i would think he wants i don't i don't think he wants this he it came out you know people were reminded this week some of the things mick cronin said you mentioned they played last year some of the things he said before that game that he told their ad dan guerrero in the interview process that his vision of what he wanted ucla to be was modeled very much on what Tom Izzo has done at Michigan State. And that makes sense because his teams at Cincinnati were not too dissimilar in the, the way they valued certain things in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's got a lot of respect for, for Michigan State's program, for Izzo's approach. And I think it makes sense when you watch his Cincinnati teams, they played that way. Um, I got to believe that that's what he wants to do at UCLA because he said it and his tr- record suggests that the fact that they're not anywhere close to that yet to me just says he hasn't quite gotten it right in terms of the, their profile as a team program mm-hmm. but that that will come over time and my understanding with him coming into ucla was that he wasn't he didn't just like run everybody off he right. he kept everybody that was there from the alford um teams and right you know nobody left nobody was unhappy and he's just slowly had to build it from there so it's not right. like he's working with his guys yet necessarily yeah and that's the thing man you could you could scarcely find two guys at more disparate ends of the the uh, spectrum than Steve Alford and what he valued as a coach and and what Mick Cronin's teams have had been prior to his taking this job mm-hmm. so you're talking about taking guys who really were probably not even if they were talented are probably not the players Mick Cronin would emphasize in recruiting, you know, but Uh, that's the choice you're left with, right? You take over a program and especially a place like UCLA, you've got to know that the, um, the patience is not going to be there to say, I gotta, I gotta tear this thing down before we build it back up. That that's, that's off the table. 
Yeah. And they weren't going to be a tournament team, I believe, last year was the way it shook out. But in year two, he's got them to the tournament, even if it's a very flawed team. I, I don't think you can look at it and say, well, it was the wrong move to keep those guys. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And two of them, their two best guys, are have been injured most of the year. So, I, I mean, I I would think that this is a success for him. Um, yeah, I would think you'd have to judge it that way, too. Yeah. Uh, so then their starters, Tiger Campbell. Um a former Michigan State recruit. I didn't yep. uh, realize that. 5'11", junior point guard, um, 10.5 points a game, 5.6 uh, assists, 43 from the floor, only 25 from three, and 78 from the line. Yeah, Tiger Campbell uh, was in the 18 class, same class as Lawyer. And early, he was kind of a phenom nationally. And then I think, as happens sometimes with certain kids, other guys catch up and surpass them physically, and that was the case with Tiger. He's only five eleven. Um, didn't doesn't have great quickness. Obviously, for that three point number, you see, never been a great shooter. Um, but he was a guy Michigan State was definitely in on, and then they opted to go with Lawyer. He opted to go with DePaul initially, and then decommitted. Ended up at UCLA under Alford. And has stuck it out. He had some injury problems early on, but has stuck it out with Mick Cronin and has been the starter. Uh, he played at La Lumiere with, uh, Jaron Jackson. Mm. Um, he was on that, he was on that team, Jaron Jackson senior year. He was the point guard. Um, you know, he's had an okay year. He can't shoot the three ball, which is a problem. It's a limiter, but, um, he's a decent lead guard in terms of, you know, drive and kick stuff. Um, you know, double digit score. So he's been reasonably effective in that way. Physically, he's not, he's also, it's kind of similar to lawyer in some ways. He's just not very strong. And so he suffers defensively from that and the fact that he's only 5'11. Um, yeah. this is a matchup that I do think, uh, Rocket Watts. Yeah. Could, could get some stuff done just by being physically bigger and stronger and quicker. Yeah. Than Campbell. And Campbell's game is actually kind of a lot like Rockets, floaters, um, pull-up yep. jumpers, that yep. type of thing. Yeah, and the inconsistency with the three. Yeah. So I was like, maybe a guy you go under the screen with. I I, I listen just for shits and giggles. I listened to the UCLA uh, podcast. I guess it would be like kind of like ours, uh, and they were saying complaining about they're just like if he could only hit a three when they go underneath the right. screen. Yeah. I was like, well. Geez, we are almost never go underneath screens, but maybe it's right. Time. But if, if there's a game to play it that way, this is probably it. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Uh, of course, the flip side to that is, you know, and we've said this sometimes: if you give a shooter a great look, sometimes you can turn a bad shooter into a decent one, a decent one into a good one, and a good one into a great one. Yeah. So. You got to be careful with that, but yeah, I would think this is a game you could maybe choose to play it that way. Uh, and then Johnny uh, Juzang, six six sophomore transfer from Kentucky, um, averaging a team high fourteen points a game, forty one, thirty five from three, ninety two from the line, and grabs a little over four rebounds a game. Yeah, he was you know a, a big time recruit, uh, I believe from Southern California, who opted to go to Kentucky. And, you know, just didn't see the role that he expected there. Opted to come home this year, was declared immediately eligible. 
and it's had a nice season for UCLA, you know, but he's one of, they've got a few of these guys we're going to talk about who are all that 6'6 kind of wing mm-hmm. who can all shoot it decently, in some cases better than decently. Um, they can do a little bit as a slasher. They're a little bit of athleticism, you know, nice players offensively, maybe not so great on the other end. Yeah, that's... And, and you also have to wonder how they'll respond to, you know, look, it's a different deal. And I'm not sure which guy necessarily Aaron Henry is going to guard. This team plays small ball. Um, but whoever's going to be guarded by Aaron Henry, I don't know that they've seen anybody like that in the Pac-12. Yeah. Physically. Yeah. You know? Uh, and then Jamie Jacquez Jr. Um, 6'6". Six, six, so- Jaime Jacquez. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't even pronounce that thing. Okay. Jaime Jacquez. Uh, six six sophomore, eleven point seven points a game, six rebounds, which is team high. Forty nine from the floor, thirty eight from three, sixty six from the line. Again, you know, there's things to like here. Very good offensive player. He's a sophomore, um, Southern Cal kid. Uh, rebounds decently. Uh, if I've got questions, it's the defensive end and how is he going to respond to a different style of defense? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of try- Michigan State's job here, frankly is this this should not be a pretty game. Yeah. You know, that it's as simple as that. A uh, pretty game UCLA probably wins. Yeah. Yeah. And then Jules Bernard, 66 junior averaging 10.4 points a game, 4.8 rebounds, 47 from the floor, 40 from 3, 75 from the line. And he's kind of the backup point guard too. Yeah. Yeah, again, nice player. You know, these three guys are all very skilled, all double-digit scorers. They can all shoot it well. You know, they do a lot of things in in terms of of skills. I'm not convinced about the toughness, and I'm definitely not convinced about the defensive end. Yeah. Like, very vulnerable. So, you know, again, whoever's got to guard Aaron Henry, and Bernard is the guy I believe they think is their best defender, so he's probably the guy that gets that call. Um, he better pack a lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know Michigan State is gonna. You, know, you got a you got a problem with the way Aaron Henry's been playing in in terms of being able to keep him out of the lane, and that's got to be job one for these guys for whoever's guarding Aaron. Mm. Uh, and then Cody Riley, 6'9", 250-pound redshirt junior, 10.2 points a game, 5.2 rebounds, 55% from the floor, 69 from the line. You know, he was a guy who was pretty highly regarded when they got him. He's been around a long time. He yeah. goes back to, you remember that deal when they were on a um, team trip to China and it was the middle uh, ball oh, the, brother yeah, got like, arrested? Yeah, for yeah. stealing a watch or something. Riley was involved in that. That's how long he's been around. He's a redshirt junior, so this is his fourth year in the program. He, I remember him from that game two years ago mm-hmm. um, when Michigan State played him in Vegas. And he was a guy then who they felt pretty good about and physically because they always put together 6'9", 250. And he's got some game. He's got a decent low post game. You know, Camperoni compared him a little bit to Julius Marble. I think he's, I think that's cutting him short a little bit. He's done a lot more than Julius Marble has in his career. But he just, I, I look at that and I remember what he looked like when Michigan State played him. I remember him being pretty effective in that game, you know, 
two years ago, mm-hmm. um, at times at least. But and then I look at the numbers and they're they're okay, but they're not. I don't know why he doesn't rebound better than that. I don't know why he's not more of a defensive presence for them. And and I also think, especially in a league that's kind of soft, why isn't he getting more done offensively? I don't know yeah. the answer to that. But he's okay. He's not a, certainly not a bad player. And we know Michigan State at times has had troubles with guys in the post who have less game than he has. Mm-hmm. I, I do think things are maybe a little bit different now because you have – I do think Julius Marble's been better in terms of bringing physicality on defense. And I think Marcus Bingham has obviously changed some things. And you can, length, so. you can play those guys for the most part right. the whole time. He's right. not going to stretch them out. He's not going to stretch you. He's not going to stretch you at all. Exactly right. So you can play the lineups you want to play. Yeah. Uh, and then coming off the bench, David Singleton, 6'4", junior, 4.7 points a game, uh, getting about 17 minutes a game, um, 43 from the floor, 46 from three, uh, 63 from the line. And shooter. Yeah. Shooter. Shooter, plain and simple. The majority of his shots come from three. I think about 75% of his attempts come from deep and yeah. he's a mid 40 shooter. So that's a guy Michigan State has to be conscious of when he's on the floor, mm-hmm. for sure. They got a lot of, they, that's the thing. If I'm befuddled by anything with this team, more than anything else, it's they shoot the three so well. Why aren't they taking more of them? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I haven't seen enough of them to know for sure, but I, I don't get it because they've got weapons. Uh, and then Mac Etna, six um, ten freshman who reclassified, joined the team in early January, um, and they needed him because obviously Smith and Jordan Hill were out, uh, season-ending injuries. Um, he's getting about 13 minutes a game, 3.4 points, uh, 3.4 rebounds, 71 from the floor, 33 at the line. Yeah, he's a guy that they like long term for sure because he's he's got decent size already. Needs about 230, probably needs to be a little bit stronger, a little bit bulkier to really blossom. But they they like his athleticism for the position. He's got good length. He's he's got a lot of potential. He was a he was a uh, a heavily recruited guy. Um, as you say, it was important. This is a similar situation to what Ohio State had with Michi Johnson where there was a need. And fortunately, this, they had somebody in their recruiting class who was capable of accelerating things and uh, reclassifying. Same thing here. UCLA needed some size off their bench. They didn't have a big roster to begin with, and they lost two guys with size. They needed him, and he's been pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Jake Kyman, 6'6", sophomore wing, averaging 3.3 points a game, 39 from the floor, 33 from three, 67 from the floor, or from the free, point, uh, free throw line. Yeah, it just eats up some minutes on the wing, kind of a small ball four type at times too. Uh, could shoot it a little bit, mostly a three-point shooting threat, you know, offensively. Not as reliable as Singleton, but, you know. That, that's where he contributes mostly on offenses outside the arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Jalen Clark, 6'6", freshman, um, averaging nine minutes a game. Um, not a ton of production, but from what I listened to on that other broadcast, um, they were saying he was their best offensive rebounder by far. Yeah, and they say, I, I've gotten a similar vibe reading some, some UCLA stuff in, in the last couple of days. Uh, they seem to be really high on him as a freshman. That's, he and, and Eddie N, they, they 
feel like these are guys that are probably you know going to be part of Cronin's remaking of that roster. Yeah, that would make probably sense. a little bit more toughness, a little bit more physicality. Um, it's that kind of thing. But again, they're freshmen, and so they're they're limited in terms of their impact right now. But um, you know, he will play. Mm-hmm. All right. So the keys, Rod, um, defend the arc. Our old faithful this year. <laughs> it is, and and it's a bellwether for sure. And I think in this game, it absolutely needs to be number one uh, because it's not the only thing UCLA can do. And they, as I keep saying, I don't think they do enough of it given how efficient they've been. But that it's surprising that they're as limited as they are. But I think for Michigan State, against anybody, this is where it starts. Against a team like this, it absolutely has to start there. They need to limit not just the attempt numbers, but the quality of attempt that UCLA gets. We, we've been talking about this. Our feeling from watching some tape, reading about it, watching games, is that the Pac-12, you have a bigger window for good looks at the basket from deep. Mm-hmm. That teams don't defend you on the perimeter the way we're used to seeing in the Big Ten. We'll see if that plays out. Um, but Michigan State needs to emphasize that they can't be giving up open looks, especially early. You, you don't, you just don't want this team to get confidence rolling early with a big flurry of threes of open looks, and all of a sudden they go on a run, and then you're in a hole. Mm-hmm. So from from jump, it's got to be attention to detail, closing out, locating shooters, limiting um, the quality of look that they're getting. Because I've heard that they're kind of like a four out, one in. Yeah. One in, four yeah. out. So, well, look at the, I mean, look at the, look at the team, right? You have Riley and then, you know, Campbell's not really a great shooting threat, but he's your point guard. And then the other three guys, the two wings and the four are it's not that they take the majority of their shots from three, but that's what they do really well. Mm-hmm. And and they also want to space you out to create penetration opportunities also yeah. because those guys are all quick. So they, they're going to test Michigan State. If Michigan State is shutting down, the, kind of running them off the line, so to speak, then the next part of that challenge is can you contain them off the dribble? Mm. You know, And that's where MSU struggled, for example, with Maryland this year. Yeah. Because they just couldn't do that. Now, UCLA is not quite the profile that Maryland is in that way. They don't have as many shooting threats, and they're, I don't think they're as hell-bent on just kind of taking those full-back dives to the rim. Mm. But they are a team that has guys that can take it off the dribble, and so you got to be able to got to be able to deal with both. Got to balance there. Uh, and then the second key, physicality. Um, Mick Cronin's team probably isn't to where he would like it to be yet, uh, but right. Yeah, I mean we, we've been talking MSU's about MSU's at his best, right? I mean, right. It's it's been the key to these big wins. It's something that I think they finally found an identity, and it's an old one for Michigan State, but it's uh, one that needed to be revived, and they did for the most part. Uh, and that doesn't mean that they're going out there and just knocking, you know, cracking skulls, but they need they need to establish themselves as the team that's going to win the majority of 50-50 balls, that's going to play harder and tougher 
and with more force than the opponent. You know, that's a key for them because they can't just go out there and rely on skill. Mm. This is not a good enough shooting team. It's not a good enough passing team. It's not good enough anything offensively to, to think that they're just going to go out there and win games in pretty fashion. That's what I said a few minutes ago. If this is a pretty game, UCLA has got an advantage, clearly. Uh, Michigan State needs to make it a tough game, a physical game. Some of that's going to come down again, as I mentioned a while back. How is it officiated? That's always the question when you get to the tournament. I will say this. I've seen people, not so much from the Michigan State fan base, but I've, I've been reading, God help me, some Michigan talk lately. And this question always comes up about, well, the Big Ten having this 20-year NCAA championship drought. And there's this cliche that somehow people have accepted as true that, well, the Big Ten really suffers in the NCAA tournament because, you know, the team officials don't let you get away with as much physically as you do in the Big Ten season. I, I think that's completely inaccurate. All you need to do is I think anybody would accept that Michigan State has probably been the most physical team in the Big Ten over the course of Tom Izzo's time. Not every single year, but most years, right? Mm-hmm. Who's had better success anywhere than Michigan State in the tournament? Forget the Big Ten. So that's a load of bunk. But but that said, I don't think it's my point there is I don't think it's a given that somehow NCAA tournament games are definitely going to be refereed tighter. I don't think that's true at all. I think a lot of times, in fact, You've had situations where you're just stunned that they're letting them play as freely. Yeah. Well, once once these refs have gotten to the NCAA tournament, they're finally free to do whatever they want. That's true. They can't be. Well, except that you're still being evaluated for Final Four and Elite Eight. Yeah, I guess. Maybe that's why we can never get past the Final Four. (laughs) Well, and, and that's the thing. Have there been individual games where it's hurt Michigan State? Yes. I mean, I think you go back to that game against Duke in the Final Four in 15, and that was clearly a joke, Mm -hmm. the way that game was officiated. But that was also at the height of this moved um, freedom of movement emphasis, and I think that's settled down a little bit since then. So all that said, the whistle is important. Mm -hmm. And just on that note, Rod, uh, one of the – referees got covid and wound up yeah, taking out six, six guys yeah yep. and they're all guys that michigan state just would love not to have uh teddy valentine um randy Ayers, kissinger well, if you told me bo borowski was in that group i'd be i'd be thrilled he's not uh, yeah i've huh. only seen four they they haven't released I never the other two with Ted valentine i have to tell you I know people live to hate him because of the histrionics and everything. He doesn't do Big Ten games anymore. Yeah. But um, but I never had a problem with Ted Valentine. I thought Ted Valentine is a pretty good official, but people differ on this stuff. Uh, so the third key, Rod, transition, which is not yeah. something that we've talked about a lot this year, really. You can't once you get into Big Ten play, right? It yeah. tends to fade from the discussion because Big Ten teams just don't let you run very much. But it usually comes back into the discussion at this time of year. And, and I UCLA's slow. So, I they, mean, they're really they slow. Are, and I also think that looseness that we're talking about yeah. might result in Michigan State getting some opportunities. Now, they got to control the defensive glass 
in order to do that, get stops. But um, I think there's a chance we could see Michigan State getting more done on the break than we're used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then points in the paint is the fourth key. Uh, again, it's been a staple over the last several weeks. Um, you mentioned UCLA gives up a lot of threes, and they give up a pretty good rate of success mm-hmm. for opponents from three. But I think it goes the other way. I think Michigan State needs to establish points in the paint, which in turn should lead to better opportunities for them from deep. Um, and I, you look at this UCLA team, I mean, look, there are some matchup issues. When UCLA's got their their starters out there and, you know, MSU wants to play Hauser, let's say, at the four, is he going to be able to guard those guys effectively? That's a challenge. At the other end, Joey Hauser should be able to do damage against anybody guarding him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the four, I would say Malik Hall as well. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, those are two guys that I think would have a hell of a chance to get some work done in the post. Um, but I, I, however it comes, and Aaron Henry's obviously going to be a big part of that, um, they need production inside. Mm-hmm. That's your bedrock. You get that, I think the perimeter production will flow from it. Uh, and then five is turnovers. Uh, you know, UCLA is not a great turnover team, but they're better than MSU. Mm-hmm. And it's something we always, you know, we almost always have it in our keys. Occasionally we, we don't, but it's it's always something in the back of everyone's mind as you're watching these games. This team has been very inconsistent. There have been a lot of games where they've come out and had maybe eight, nine, and you feel pretty good about it, and then they'll follow it up with 18. Mm. Uh, they can't have a big turnover game. That That's the kind of thing that I think could be an equalizer. Even if MSU is being allowed to play as physically as they want to when they're getting results from that, if you have a big gap in the shot attempts, I, I don't expect Michigan State to have a huge rebounding advantage in this game. Yeah. I, think that, uh, I think that that will probably be relatively even. So they need to make sure that turnovers aren't a big problem. Hmm. All right. Well, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I think that MSU is going to get some open threes in this game. Um, I just think that based on like what I heard from the UCLA fan, and this is super interesting. I don't usually do this with the, you know, I don't go to the other uh, teams, uh, mm-hmm. podcasts and stuff, but it is interesting from time to time to hear somebody like a UCLA cause they were good. They were actually really good. Um, and they're talking about, um, how horrible of a shooting team Michigan state is. And I'm just thinking to my, to myself, like, man, okay. You know, if you want to give Aaron Henry wide open threes, because you think he's only a 29% shooter, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, you hope, but I, I I think that for Michigan State, it needs to come from the flow of the offense. So, again, how, how I would look at it is you start by establishing things inside, mm. and then it flows from that. As UCLA has to collapse their defense, you get kickouts, and you have better quality looks. I do not think UCLA – is going to be capable of doing what most Big Ten teams can yeah. in terms of recovery to shooters, 
they just don't look that disciplined and they're not used to playing that way. Yeah. So I'd be surprised if we see that. You know, there's obviously a luck element in terms of the shooting. Michigan State shooters have to be on, right? But I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the quality of look that you're getting. I, I yeah. don't think what you want is kind of a rerun of that Maryland game in College Park where they're just jacking threes. Right, right. No, you don't want that. You want it to come from the flow of the offense. And if they do that, if they do establish things in the paint, I think what's going to come as a result of that are good, open, high-quality looks. And then you just, look, you got to live with that, right? Yeah. I mean, bottom line is you want the shot opportunities to be good. If if they are and you don't hit them, that sucks. But, you know, the job, you know, this is people uh, sometimes get results-oriented, and I don't think you can be entirely. Yeah, results are going to determine you know, whether you hit shots or not. That's going to determine whether you win or lose a game, to be sure. But in terms of how you evaluate how a team is playing, I think it's always much more about what is the quality of look yeah. you're getting. Well, yeah, if you're hit, if you're missing wide open threes, you have nobody to blame but yourself. Right. I mean, that's right. exactly what then you want. Then it's just right. It, and so my evaluation of Michigan State is mostly on that level. You know, and there have been games this year, that Ohio State game in Columbus, I thought they did a pretty good job of getting good shots. Mm-hmm. They just couldn't throw it in the ocean. They couldn't yeah. hit. That's why we're not talking about this Michigan, or rather, that's why we're talking about this Michigan State team in a, in a play-in game, mm-hmm. yeah. rather than sitting there with a three seed. You know, that's why, one of the reasons why. But I think if you're evaluating this team, given what they actually are, you, you really are mostly focused with, are you not settling? Are you working the offense? Are you getting production inside? And is that, in turn, going to lead to better looks from deep? And if they do all that, I'll take my chances because that's all I can really ask of them. I, I, yeah. I know they're not. A, this is not Denzel Valentine, Bryn Forbes, Aaron Harris. It's not that group. So they could get good looks and miss them. Entirely possible. But I'll take my chances if they get the good looks. Yeah. All right. Uh, so this one's actually, uh, they changed the time on this one, Rod, 9.57 p.m. Yeah, I was way off with that. I was, my fault for relying on CBS Sports Network. <laughs> that sounds about um, right, though. Yeah, <laughs> as we were talking about in that, in that last podcast. And, um, yeah, clearly, now I couldn't have been the other end of further away. Mm-hmm. 9.57 start time, right? Yeah. That's what you would expect, I think. Uh, and, for... and, and one other point: this game is being played at Mackey Arena. Yeah, so yeah, that's a you can point. look at it one of two ways. You could say, "Well, it's a house of horrors for Michigan State. They rarely ever win there." That's true. The other end of it is they play there pretty much every year. Hmm. They've got a familiarity with that gym that UCLA does not have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just to add on to that we probably have a bunch of cable cutters um i've been looking for it for for the most part every year i'm able to get by with just fubo tv and sling and i can watch all the games this year i've actually been able to get by strictly with fubo tv because they've added espn and espn2 but now you got these tbs tnt true tv Uh, my suggestion uh to the viewers if you don't have that or you're just looking at it and you're like holy crap i don't have that um 
it's Hulu Live. You can get a seven-day free trial, which will get you through the first weekend. Um, and they have TNT, TBS, True TV. Good so, tip. Um, that's what I'm going to be doing, that seven-day free trial. And then we'll we'll go from there for uh, – I might just, you know, have to go somewhere if else. survive. But, yeah. yeah, if you're looking for for um, a way to watch it, that's that's probably your best bet. Okay, good right. tip. Anything else? Any final thoughts, Ron? I think I think we've covered it. I think so. Okay. All right. Well, until the post game, the final four is not on the schedule. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.